Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, from her childhood in Detroit to her rise as one of the nation's best-known sports journalists and the controversy regarding tweets. Jamil Hill details it all in her new memoir, Uphill. She joins me later in the program. Also, five small business resource hubs are now open throughout Atlanta. It's a project from Invest Atlanta called ATLN Business. And in just a moment, we'll head to the state capitol where Georgia's House Republicans have just gathered in their chamber to announce the next Speaker of the Georgia House. All that's just ahead. But first this. Early voting on Saturday in Georgia for the U.S. Senate runoff will not be available. The election will last just four weeks, and counties can choose to offer early voting as soon as next Tuesday. And we'll hear more from our WABE politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. Early voting is required to begin by Monday, November 28th. Counties can choose to start earlier. What they can't do is offer voting on Thanksgiving or the day after, a state holiday originally marking Robert E. Lee's birthday. Georgia law also prevents Saturday early voting within two days of a holiday. That rule didn't cause too many problems in the past, but when Georgia's new election law condensed the runoff from nine to four weeks, it also meant that with Thanksgiving, there'd be no window for Saturday voting. Litigation over the rule is possible. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Georgia advocates are pushing for more financial supports for women, children, and families during the upcoming legislative session. Now, among the proposals is a state-earned income tax credit to give low-income working families a tax break, which more than half of states currently offer. Ife Finch-Floyd is an analyst with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. She says cash programs are successful at improving birth outcomes, babies, brain development, and maternal health helping people get to those doctor appointments, being able to afford those prenatal vitamins, relieving stress because, you know, you're working so much or you can't pay your bills. Stress can impact the developing child inside of you. In Georgia, Black women are more than twice as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women and remain at higher risk for poor birth outcomes. Maroney business owners are calling on state and city leaders in Georgia to help level the playing field when it comes to access to funding, something we'll talk about in just a moment. Many met at the new Black Wall Street in DeKalb County over the weekend. The Small Business Economic Development Forum was designed for small business owners to come together and brainstorm ways to succeed. Bruce Level organized, organized for the event for the nonprofit Concerned Communities of America. He talks about avoiding some of the present day challenges like politics. Let's not let politics ever try to define us. It's imperative, especially in black culture, to agree to disagree, whether you vote Republican, whether you're Democrat, but it's imperative that we agree to disagree because the noise will get in the way of our economic gain. 
Now, the information from the event will be present, presented to state and local officials. The new Black Wall Street is a marketplace for new and established minority-owned businesses and promotes generational wealth. Now, as mentioned, Georgia House Republicans have just nominated a new speaker of the Georgia House. Ladies and gentlemen, our new speaker is John Burns. Representative John Burns, a current majority leader, will serve as Georgia's next Speaker of the House. This comes a little over a week after David Ralston announced he would not seek re-election as Speaker, citing unspecified health matters. Now, here to share more about this is our other WABE politics reporter, Raul Bali. Welcome. Hey, Rose. Listen, you uh, had a busy morning. It's actually still going. They, uh, you, As you mentioned, John Burns... Uh, has been uh, nominated to be the next speaker, but they're still going through the rest of the officers. And actually, just moments ago, as you mentioned, John Burns is the majority leader. Well, mm-hmm. th- of course, they have to replace him. Mm-hmm. And the nominee there is Chuck F. Stration, mm-hmm. who is from Gwinnett County. And I think your audience would better know know him for uh, being the author of the hate crimes law, House mm-hmm. Bill 426, a few years ago. So. Mm-hmm. Right now, Republicans are just going down the ballot, uh, picking their new nominees. Let's back up for a moment for those not familiar. Who is John Burns? How long has he been a majority leader? He's been majority leader since 2015. Uh, He represents a district in East Georgia. Uh, It's a district that runs along the Savannah River, including Screven County and Effingham County. Um, between Savannah and Augusta. So he's from that part of the state. Uh, And who ran against him was State Representative Barry Fleming, who's Mm -hmm. also from the Augusta area. He's from Columbia County. And I think more people, he was a much more recognizable name because he was one of the leading authors of Senate Bill 202, Mm -hmm. which was that massive elections and voting law overhaul from a couple of years ago that really kicked in with this election cycle. Curious, uh, did Burns, did he face any challengers also looking to become a speaker? You just talked about that. But in terms of this is really not a popularity contest. What are folks looking for? What are the representatives looking for in terms of saying this is the person that we want? I think two things that with with the the nomination of John Burns, I think in many ways it will be a continuation of the way Speaker David Ralston runs things because he's obviously somebody who was serving under uh, uh, the speaker as majority leader, Mm -hmm. kind of that style of, of reach out to Democrats when you can on issues you can fight against Democrats when it's other issues that that you want to battle against. And, you know, what do you do? about the more conservative wings of the party who, who it, what you know, for some people may feel like that that legislation is too extreme. Now, that's going to be, a, again, a much more interesting balancing act because Republicans are going to have 101 members. It takes 91 mm-hmm. to pass any piece of legislation. So, you know, it's a, it's a shrinking majority. And as you may have heard this morning, I mentioned, this is the smallest majority that Republicans have had in the Georgia House since 2005, mm-hmm. 2006, when they first took over. Yeah. And then, Raul, what do we know about the Burns relationship with David Rostin? I mean, they, they are close allies in the House here. Absolutely. I mean, th- and that's what I mean. It, 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 in a way, it's going to be a continuation of, of his style and mm-hmm. his reaching out. And I think that's also what you see. Um, because Jan Jones has been has been renominated to be the number two in the House mm-hmm. and with Chuck F. Stration, you know, somebody who's reached out to the other side again on, on hate crimes legislation. So the noticeable things you hear is kind of a continuation of that style of, you know, reaching out to Democrats when you can. And then, you know, you know, sticking with your issue, sticking with Republican conservative issues when, you know, they need to or they feel like that that's what they should be doing. That's yeah, that's what you're kind of seeing here. And so what's next before legislators start a new session here in January? 
So the, the key things are, you know, they're the, uh, nominating the rest of their officers. Democrats uh, are going to be doing that both on the Senate and House side over the next couple of weeks. Uh, between now and then, you know, if, if John Burns wants to change any any committee chairs, um, you know, most importantly, there needs to be an appropriations chair because mm -hmm. Terry England is leaving. And mm -hmm. remember, there's a 30 billion dollar yeah. state budget and there's billions of surplus dollars that people have to decide what to do with. So you've got a couple of important things that are that are on the docket right now. And then, you know, looking ahead is is, um, you know, the legislature kicking in and mm -hmm. people start filing bills and we do what we do down here. Absolutely. And that's why, folks, if you're wondering why we're spending some time about this, you should know that the speaker had carries a lot of weight in, your, in your state houses. Yeah. And, and, I, and I remind people, as important as the election was on Tuesday, today's election is of the second most powerful person in this state when it comes to politics. David Ralston and now John Burns has the power to stop any legislation dead in its tracks, you know, other than the governor having the, the veto power. Mm -hmm. That's that's the importance of this office. And, and you've seen and again, the two examples I'll give you real quick. Example one was a, a gun bill that was passed that was being attempted to be passed around the time of the Asian spa shootings. Mm -hmm. David Ralston, even though he's pro Second Amendment, felt like the pro, you know, the timing was inappropriate and sure. he stopped it. Yeah. And then on the flip side, the mental health reform and substance abuse services reform package last, last earlier this year does not get passed without the force mm -hmm. of David Ralston. And that obviously becomes part of his legacy as well. Uh, real quickly, Raul, what do we know about the health of David Ralston? And he didn't go into too many details, but he did cite it as a reason as he did not want to seek re-election as speaker. Very minimal information. You know, that's the the only thing I can really share with the audience is he's doing a little better now than when we first heard the announcement a week and a half ago. And that's really all the update. They've been very private and very, they kept that very close to the best. As understood. WAB politics reporter, politics reporter Raul Bali, as always, we thank you so much for taking the time and give us important information. We appreciate it. I'm going to go run back in. All right. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott adjusting her mic because Daniel knocked it off. It's his birthday today, and he just oh, just doesn't care anymore. Happy birthday, Daniel. Uh, small businesses, as you know, are so important on so many levels because they are part of our community, and also they are one's dreams. But we know it's clear it's not easy to start a small business, let alone stay in business. Well, this year there's a partnership and initiative with the city and Invest Atlanta. So five small business resource hubs are now open throughout the city. It's a project from Invest Atlanta called ATLN Business. And joining me now with more is Michael Apricio, ATL, ATLN Business Technical Service Advisor. We're going to talk about that name in a moment. And Gail Mapp of Level Construction Services. 
small business owner using the services. Welcome to you both. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having us. Gail, let me start with you. How long have you been in business? My business is a family business, and my husband and I own it. It's We've been in business for over 50 years wow. in Atlanta. His father started the business back in the late 60s. What has been the challenging thing about owning your own business, family business? Uh, the challenging thing, I would say one of the most challenging things is financing. Mm -hmm. So getting financing and then also um, business, knowing how to run a business. A lot of times when you have small business owners, they know how to do what it is that they do, but they don't really know how to run a business. So then you have to go out and get advice and consulting from others that can help you learn how to run a business. And what has been the most rewarding about running your own business? I think being a family business, leaving a legacy, mm -hmm. And leaving a legacy for our kids and our grandkids and just trying to continue that. So, Michael, when you hear what Gail talks about the challenges, mm -hmm. but then also that last part of what's been rewarding, mm -hmm. you hear this a lot when you talk to business on why they go into business, why yes. they want to own a business, small business. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're really here to support is to amplify that, that mission for them to support their communities. Uh, they have an idea of, of you know, their value um, and, you know, kind of part, part of our role is to supplement that with some of the business frameworks, marketing frameworks, the mm -hmm. things that maybe uh, are the reasons why they didn't go into business to really focus on all these technical aspects. And I, we think the combination of those two, the passion on their side, their knowledge of their customers, and then on our side, promoting practices, good practices, technology, and those sort of learnings. Well, you talk about technical aspects because mm -hmm. when Gail talked about the family business started mm -hmm. in the 60s, well, the technical aspects are way different. They're if a little they, different now. A little different now. <laughs> so when you talk about that, I want to dig a little deeper. What are we talking sure. about the te technical aspects of, mm -hmm. of owning and operating a small business? Sure. Well, you know, we're obviously talking in the context of the pandemic here, okay. right? And ATL and business was started kind of recognizing that, well, the pandemic uncovered a lot of pre-existing issues. Mm -hmm. um, there, the digital divide was really then very apparent. Mm -hmm. um, and the program for ATL and business is really important because it now provides an opportunity for small businesses to catch up and to really focus on, say, online presence, website development, uh, software, operating software for their business. You know, different, different industries have different operating mechanisms mm -hmm. they could use to be more efficient, to provide better service to your customers. So that's kind of some examples of what we're talking about. Gail, for those technical aspects with your business, what do you rely on? I mean, obviously you have a website, but then the infrastructure, everything that it takes. What For folks listening, they say, well, a construction company, what kind of technical aspects do you all need? What are, you, what are we talking about here? Well, actually, um, we do have a website, but our website is like 20 years old. <laughs> Not Gail. <laughs> Again, do I have funds? Yes. Yeah. It costs pay, money, yeah. To pay someone to update my website mm -hmm. regularly. You know, when you got to choose between that and something else, a lot of times the something else gets it. Well, and also, if I don't know how folks pay you, but a lot of folks prefer if can I pay you online? Can I use my phone to pay you? That's another technical aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I want to come back to you, Michael. How did all this come about? I mean, we know what Invest Atlanta is the, considered the economic arm of the city, and, mm-hmm. and, and but you're not technically owned by the city, are you? Kind of, sort of. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Invest Atlanta. Many people do know that is the economic development arm for the city of Atlanta, Um, but they recognize that small businesses across the city, different communities, uh, that is very important part of economic development in the city. So there's a lot of attention now on small businesses that focus on community involvement and engagement. Uh, So with the uh, five centers that you mentioned, Invest Atlanta has coordinated these five centers Mm -hmm. to be out in the communities and creating awareness of services that are available to them, whether it's in person or going online, atlnbusiness.com, to schedule consulting services. So I I own Revby, Mm -hmm. which is a consulting firm that has partnered with Invest Atlanta as part of the ATL and Business program. And I'm one of about a dozen or so uh, providers that provide services ranging from strategy, business planning, marketing planning. And it's uh, all free. And it is free. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really wonderful. That's a really great thing about this. Um, and any city of Atlanta-based small business really should try and kind of go through atlmbusiness.com to explore it. Are there any requirements? Do you have to be in business for five years? I mean, Gail got them all beat. They just go back to the 60s. So, you know, yeah. when you just start now for people that say, you know what, I don't technically have the brick and mortar or right now we're just in the beginning phases mm-hmm. can you help someone along the way whatever phase they're in sure well you know atl and business is kind of two components there is some self-serve material on the website to help people as they're just getting that planning phase so there's plan materials uh, start material managing uh, building and growing mm-hmm. um, for the in-person one-on-one technical assistance services the requirements are that you do have to have a City of Atlanta license. Okay. So that is that is one there. A um, couple of other requirements. There is a uh, affidavit just to show that there was a hardship due to COVID-19. Um, and for nonprofits, they have to have that letter of good standing, City of Atlanta license. Those are really the main requirements. So let me back up because we're a nonprofit, sure. so we could actually enlist you all for some Absolutely. resources. And find RevB on the list. We would love to work <laughs> with you. <laughs> Gail, how have you taken advantage of the resources that are available through this? Well, actually, I'm working with Michael now mm-hmm. for my website. <laughs> and it, look, if the website don't look right, you better let me know. because <laughs> Michael is excellent. Yeah. He has done excellent work. And it was really very easy for us to get together because you just go to ATL and business mm-hmm. on the web, you can look at all of the different businesses, the consultants and what they um, offer. And website design was what I needed. And I looked at Michael's and I was like, oh, this looks like he might be just the fit. <laughs> and he really has been, you know. And how valuable has that been if you could put a dollar amount on it? Because you said, look, it costs money to get. You want a very good web designer. Yeah. And Atlanta has some great creative people. And you want people to be paid what they're worth. So. It's you, been it's been priceless, yeah. honestly, because uh, again, most of the times, and especially being in construction, you don't really know what you should have, mm-hmm. and then you really don't know what it's worth, mm. you know, until you start looking around and saying, "Oh, I don't think I can do that right now." <laughs> <laughs> when you think back to when you and your husband y'all started operating the business. And to now, what has been the biggest learning curve for you? I mean, in terms of 
because things change. I mean, we, now technology is such is so important when it comes to operating a small business. And as I said earlier, that was different when you all started back in the 60s. What has been that learning curve for you? Well, for us, because we are level construction and we are commercial contractors, before now, you looked at plans, you bid, you gave a price, the lowest price won. That, that was, was it. it. But now, every time you meet someone, they're looking at you on LinkedIn. They're going to your website. Mm -hmm. They're checking out your previous work. They're, do and they're so looking at those Yelp reviews, <laughs> which that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> oh, no. But, yeah. Yeah. And so it is very. it has become very important. Michael, what do you want folks to know about, you know, taking advantage of these resources, whether it's online and being mm -hmm. able, if they qualify, to possibly meet with consultants. This is free of charge. This is invaluable sure. for small businesses. Well, absolutely. I think this is a time to, you know, go through some of that, that list that has been sort of on the side. I mean, small business owners are so busy, right? I mean, you're, you have all hats. You're wearing all hats right now. So this really is an opportunity to get through that list where you know these are the things you need to do. You know that you need that more modern, better website. That website is more converting, bringing in brand awareness, bringing in new customers, retaining customers. Um, I have a listener that has a question sure. and wants to know, do you all offer uh, consult consulting for Wi-Fi and Internet infrastructure? Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, you know, when you go to the atlandbusiness.com website, browse through the different providers, you'll probably find pretty much any kind of business marketing and technology question mm -hmm. uh, that there's a provider that addresses that. Uh, I know for us, um, just look, going through technology, whether it's internet access or uh, doing a bit of research, you know, I would put that under the category of just doing some um, online research for a small business owner on things to consider when they don't know very much about the technology. And these res these resource hubs that you have throughout Atlanta, mm -hmm. are they inside other buildings or where are they located? Oh yeah, so there are five resource centers that Invest Atlanta has made available. So um, there are several, I'll go ahead and read them off. So Pittsburgh Yards off of University mm -hmm. Avenue, uh, the Mary Parker Foundation on Campbellton Road, the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs off of Fair Street. Know them very well. Yeah, mm -hmm. and Goodwill of North Georgia. Know on them very well, too. Metropolitan Parkway <laughs> uh, and at I Village on MLK Junior Drive. And just to be clear, because we love this word, free. Mm -hmm. This is free. Is it always going to remain free? Are you all going to be around for a long time? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, so I hope you have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be available still for a little while here. So the program is made available through funds from federal ARPA dollars, the American Rescue Plan mm -hmm. Act. Um, and it will be set to at least uh, 2024. Um, so this is the time to go on atlandbusiness.com. Now, as you wrap up... Uh, I know you all listen to this program, so and I think I might have mentioned it. You, you are aware that for the last few years I've been trying to launch the Rose Scott Home for Wayward Cats. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a real thing here, Michael. So the, you, what do you got for me? What can yes. you offer me? We Free need, of charge right here. What advice are you going to give me? We need to get a plan to get the cats in and get that website. I mean, people will just melt when they see Gail, can you help build this home for <laughs> Waver Cats? Absolutely. Gail, I want to end by asking you to, what is that one piece of gold nugget advice that you want to give someone out there who's listening saying, you know, I've always thought about maybe starting my own small business. Don't know if it's the right time. You all have made it through a pandemic. What are you going to offer? You have to be passionate about what it is that you want to do mm -hmm. because then you get 
the the drive to get it done because it's not easy. People mm-hmm. always think, oh, I want to have my own business so I can do things the way I want to do them and when I want to do them and that sort of thing. That's not it. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to be prepared for a lot of hard work, but it is very rewarding. And I would say that... Um, If you are passionate about something, if you have a product, if you have a service or anything that you are very passionate about, go for it. Mm -hmm. Just go for it. I mean, because the worst thing you can do is not not make it. (laughs) And you might have to do something else. Or not even try. Right. Not trying is out of the question. I say go for it. And I'm just a natural risk taker. But, you know. (laughs) With a, with a brand new website. <laughs> Absolutely. <Michael. Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Gail Map of Level Construction Service. She's a small business owner using the services that Michael Apricio, the Atlanta in Business Technical Service Advisor. It's a new project, well, a new initiative from Invest Atlanta. And again, that website, if folks want to first just browse and see if they, yes. they want to get involved in, what is it? ATLinbusiness.com. And there is an open house at the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship this Wednesday, uh, 6 to 8 p.m. I will be there. All right. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for what you're doing for folks in the community. Gail, best of luck to you and your business. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. As journalists, it's clear we are all not the same. However, as many of you who are regular listeners to this program have heard me say, my job is to be fair, not always objective. There's a difference. Go ahead, send me your emails. But also, as we say, as journalists, while we spend our jobs covering other people's journeys, we have our own as well. So for award-winning sports journalist and author Jamil Hill, it's been a journey. As a sports columnist, more than a decade working for ESPN, also the NABJ Journalist of the Year. I was up for that, but I didn't get it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Currently a writer for The Atlantic and also host of the podcast Unbothered. She's also a producer of a Disney ESPN documentary with Colin Kaepernick and a lot more. She's from the Motor. They call it Detroit, also the D, and I promise not to take shots at her beloved Detroit teams or Michigan State, which is having a little bad football season. I'm not going to mention any of that. Jamil Hill, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Try to hit me right in the gut right away. But just so you know, I am actually not a Lions fan, if that's what you were referring to. Even when Barry Sanders was there? I, I like Barry Sanders, but I uh, uh, do realize that the Lions... Kevin Johnson was there, too. That's great. <laughs> get, mean, out, get out. No, I mean, these are dynamic players for yeah. sure, but I've never been a Lions fan. That team has been terrible for about five decades, Ooh, so yeah. there was no investment yeah. for me in, in the Detroit Lions. I'm actually a 49ers fan. I grew up a 49ers fan, too. You know, I'm from St. Louis, but um, now you're a Pistons fan, right? Oh, yeah. I'm definitely a Pistons fan, right. and we, we're trending north. Yeah, and we're trending north. So. Uh, north is okay. North, uh, okay. we're going up. We're going up. Yeah, we, we had the number one pick last year. Yeah. Kate Cunningham has been great. As, had, you're right. Yes, Jay Nivey, another um, lottery pick that we had. He's, he comes from good stock. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. Good so stock. yep. Uh, by the way, members of the Alley's Angels fantasy football team, which I'm currently in eighth place, but that's another story. <laughs> They're all listening and they say hello. Oh well, tell but them I'm in eighth hello. place because I had to do the automatic draft for me because I had Ooh. another. So yeah, you don't even want to who. My quarterbacks are you know well now i gotta know since you said it that way well i kind of got forgive me foul because i kind of got stuck with marcus 
and, and Jameson Winston. Oh, and then and I did some trading. I got Gino. Okay, so you know, Marcus Mariota hasn't been bad. He ain't been great for me, but he's okay. been okay. Right. Gino has been the man. Yes, definitely. Okay, now everyone's like, Rose, okay. stop talking football. <laughs> um, I want to go by. Want to begin by asking you this: um, How much do you love covering sports? Well, I mean, it's the only journalism I ever wanted to do. Yeah. Like, I I didn't spend, even though I've I've covered other things. I've covered cops. I've uh, you know covered like other issue oriented things but sports journalism was my number one goal um it's be yeah I grew up as a tomboy love sports love playing it love watching it and once I figured out in high school that this is something I could make into a career it's the only thing I really ever pursued so yeah I love it I totally understand growing up in St. Louis by the way the Cardinals the greatest baseball team in the world (laughs) um and relationships with my father listening to Cardinals games, although we had a TV, but he would turn the radio on and watch the game. I'm like, what are you doing? That's how I used to watch the game, right. too. Yep. Watching boxing on the weekends. My dad was a big boxing fan, so I totally understand all that. How supportive was your family in this career? I'm very supportive, even though they didn't quite probably understand, at least initially, how I was going to make money doing this. Same here. Yeah, but they, they were extremely supportive. My father is a big sports fan. My stepfather uh, he was a big sports fan as as well, and he was the one who kind of introduced me to sports, even though I don't ever remember not loving sports. Mm-hmm. So I really feel like it wasn't even an introduction. It's just always been kind of a natural part of my existence. But, yeah, I think they saw how serious I was about it. I wrote for my high school newspaper. Uh, I started working for the professional paper in Detroit when mm-hmm. I was in high school, the Detroit Free Press. Majored in journalism in college, had a bunch of internships. So I think because of my work ethic and my effort that they knew that this was something that I wanted to pursue. And they were uh, passionate in their support. I remember coming out. uh, I'm not going to mention my age. I think we're in the same season. (laughs) But ESPN, and you know this, for so many years, Jamil, was like the holy grail of employment. Um, for those in my generation, coming out in the when I graduated in the 90s. I would say mine, too, so yeah. I don't think it's yeah. that much different. Yeah. Landing a gig. When I came out of school, there were four places everybody wanted to work. It was either NPR, CNN, BET, <laughs> or ESPN. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was like, th- those are the four places that you, you know, and if you got a gig at CNN or ESPN, you had made it. Did you have that same sense when you landed that first gig? And I think it was 2006 you were writing for ESPN.com. No, I didn't because ESPN was not on my vision board. Really? I remember that uh, I was a writer. That yeah. was what I did uh, for the longest time. And I got hired at ESPN to write for ESPN.com. My goal, my dream job was working at Sports Illustrated. So, because that was the writer's, yeah. you know, magazine, the sports writer's magazine. So you didn't want to transition? To, you didn't think no, about transition to broadcast? I, I never thought about transitioning into broadcast. I mean, I, I started doing TV because the money was good. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Uh, then it became something where I could, you know, see how powerful the medium was. But I was completely the accidental broadcaster. I didn't. I watched ESPN like a lot of people, but I never said, you know, one day I want to host Sports Center. Never said that. So it was. Uh, but during during that time, during during our season, yeah. there was very clear lines between print and broadcast. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't till about, um, you know, of course I watched sports reporters growing up, where you saw a lot of. Uh, Print journalists and columnists that were that was the the crux of the show. Your buddy Mitch Album, yeah, Mitch Detroit. Album, yeah. yep, Mitch Album, Brian Burwell, Bill Roden, Bob Ryan, you know, Jackie McMullen. But they were newspaper people. Mm-hmm. The sports reporters was just an offshoot of what they did. And then it, I, I felt like it started to kind of change a little bit 
around the time I got to Orlando because you had shows like Around the Horn. Those mm-hmm. were all newspaper columnists. And so it was very clear that there was some blurring of, of the lines and a lot more of my peers were transitioning into television. You remember the first time you were on television for ESPN? Do you remember that? I do. I was on Outside the Lines. This was still when I was a sports columnist in Orlando. And I cannot remember what I wrote about. What I will never forget is the fact this is how TV ignorant I was. I actually went on the show with no makeup, and I looked like a ghost. Jamil, now you... I did not know this. Ooh, Believe it or not. You're about to lose that sister card. Man, I'm telling you, and, and I pray to God they burn that clip <laughs> that nobody ever surfaces because I know I looked terrible on television. I didn't know you had to wear makeup. Well, there was two things. I didn't know you had to wear makeup, and then... Was worse because of uh, I was doing it out of Orlando, so it was a remote studio where they had no makeup person. Uh-huh. But for sure, the next time I was like, "Uh, can y'all give me a makeup artist? Because <laughs> this is ridiculous." What was your family's reaction seeing you on on television? Um, you know, I I think I mean they were proud, but I I don't remember it being like a big moment where mm-hmm. you know the entire family gathered around the TV <laughs> to watch me. I, I think you know what? More than likely, I may not even have told them I was going to be on yeah. outside the lines. My family made a big deal. They had, they had like shrimp. And I mean, they, they had like barbecue. I'm like, y'all, it's just I'm going to be on CNN for like 10 minutes. It, you know, it was interesting. Um, I want to shift for a moment. How do you describe that relationship then with ESPN and then how it ended? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to call the parting awkward. But mm-hmm. even uh, even though it did end awkwardly, I still have a lot of affection for ESPN. I mean, it literally changed my life. It changed my career. It changed uh, my financial status so I have nothing to be upset about or or, or regret um, you know I think that's part of the reason because I was there for 12 years I was yes I was disappointed with how they responded when I got mm-hmm. into the controversy with the former president because growing up in a newspaper culture you stand by your journalists that's mm-hmm. what you do and yeah. they didn't do that and it really really disappointed me but it's the best job that I've ever had so I, I don't I don't have any ill will um, or or feeling or bad feelings toward ESPN. I mean, the way it started, it was funny because, I mean, it it was kind of crazy. I wound up at ESPN, yeah. And I remember when I was hired, the editor in chief uh, was not a fan. I mean, he was not somebody that he would not have chosen me if not for another executive, um, a, a guy named uh, Keith Cleanscales, who I'm still friends with. If he hadn't pushed. As in, when I say push, as in used his hired title to get me at ESPN.com, I don't think this editor-in-chief would have ever mm-hmm. hired me. But it made me feel um, really vindicated because after I wrote a few columns and he sent me this editor-in-chief, he sent me a very nice note saying basically he was wrong and he was really appreciative of my voice. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to start there and then to <laughs> to end uh, the way it did. It, but when it ended, it was it was time to go. I had done everything yeah. I could have ever imagined doing at ESPN. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Jamil Hill, and she's talking about her memoir, Uphill. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Do you get tired of talking about the 2017 tweet? No, not really. I mean, it's yeah. it's a part of it's a part of my story. I realize that a lot of people. That's how. So many of them who were maybe not sports fans who watched ESPN on a regular basis, that's how they became, um, you know, familiar with my name. And considering how life-changing it was, I mean, I understand there's a lot of interest in it. And, um, you know, I, I think I just I just don't want it to be the defining story about mm-hmm. me. You know, if, I, <laughs> if my obituary is written and that's like the first sentence, then I have failed. 
and it shouldn't that should not be um a part of that because i i like to think i would have done something um more legacy building than when you, criticizing the president and when you said and you and and folks need to be clear too you had tweeted other stuff too and mm-hmm. you weren't the only one tweeting about then president donald trump um called him a white supremacist what happened after that well, in the immediate, it became a huge international story. Yeah. And and part of that was when former press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders responded in the White House press briefing that she thought I should be fired. Mm-hmm. That's when it everything went to another level. I mean, of course, a lot of the right-wing conservative media outlets, they were criticizing me. And, you know, there started to be some pickup there. But it hadn't really moved into the mainstream media until she addressed it mm-hmm. at the press conference. And then, of course, um, uh, the former president, once he had his his say, that took the story to an even higher level. I mean, and, and never once did I think when I tweeted that, like, oh, this is going to reach the White House. It just seemed kind of surreal to me that somebody with such a high leadership position would mm-hmm. care about what a sports center anchor said about them. How soon did the death threat start? Um, well, I mean, once once it was addressed in that White House press briefing, that's kind of where they started. And um, I was getting a lot of voicemails at ESPN. I had to have them disconnect my voicemail because the voicemails being left were so um, threatening. Mm-hmm. And um, there were also people who, uh, a number of people who sent snail mail to ESPN um, issuing those same threats and calling me racial slurs and that kind of thing. So, it, yeah, right. And then, you know, of, of course, with the persona of the the former president, president, he has very aggressive followers. And so, given how he carries himself, they felt entitled to kind of, you know, call me whatever. Did ESPN pressure you to immediately issue a apology or? Not immediately. It took a couple of days, and then when they did, um, when we finally had that conversation. Uh, I, you know, I told him in no, no uncertain terms was an apology on the table, not to him, not to the president. Now, what I would apologize for, which is what I did because I wrote my own statement, was the position it put some of my colleagues in, mm-hmm. especially like my co-hosts who when, um, you know, they suspended me. And even before then, when, when they tried to send me home, that he was going to be left kind of holding the bag. And, to my Michael Smith. Yeah, to my Michael Smith. And then some of my other colleagues who I'm sure they got probably pretty tired of being asked about me yeah. by other media outlets. So for that, I I, I, I was apologetic about, but for what I said, no. I, I want to shift again for a moment because as you detail in the book, look, you've been through storms before and you've been through storms as a child and perhaps no child should endure, but it happens. And you write... Quote, the first time I saw crack cocaine wasn't in a movie. It was in my mother's palm. You were very open and vulnerable. It's a memoir, as people expect. Did you have any apprehension at all about revealing some of the things you revealed? Did you tell family members, look, I'm going to write about this? Did you want to let them know ahead of time? Well, the the person I had the the most extensive conversations with was my mother because Mm -hmm. our stories are intertwined. But... It was. I was never apprehensive about sharing certain things. I thought the only way this memoir could work was if I told my story honestly mm-hmm. and was very transparent. I wanted people to understand that though they may know me as this public figure, that there's a long journey that happened before anybody knew me mm-hmm. publicly. 
And plus, you know, a lot of the issues that I address in there, you know, the impact of sexual violence on my family, mm-hmm. the drug, the my mother's drug abuse, um, all of those things are issues that people are facing every day. And my goal when I wrote about them in the honest and candid way that I did was to take some of the shame out of having those kinds of difficult conversations like we all have been through something Mm -hmm. and maybe it surprises people that when you're a public figure you've been through something like that but nevertheless I wanted them to understand you know where I came from and and frankly how it's shaped my perspective on the world I love this part after signing your ESPN contract you write about purchasing your mom a brand new Mercedes I love this I paid cash for it (laughs) (laughs) yeah because one of the first three things she said when she got in the car is how you afford this I was like clearly she does not google me (laughs) so but it was a great moment I mean my mother and I obviously been through a lot together and I wanted her to have something just for her and so um that was like you know one of the best moments of my life for sure how's your mom doing Jamil oh great I mean you know what people have to understand I think part of the other reason I had such comfort in telling the story that I told is both her and my father have been uh drug free for decades Mm -hmm. so These are, and especially with my mother, because she's always been very accountable about um, some of the things that I was put through uh, growing up, and that allowed a certain path to forgiveness. And I've, even though there were stories she told me for the book that I have frankly not heard before, Mm -hmm. um, just understanding her complete journey just makes me give her that much more grace. And how much of her journey, when you look at what you've endured and continue to endure now, has that helped you in terms of dealing with stuff in the past as related to our past president and any anytime you tweet anything? <laughs> well, I think it is what allows me to have a bit of a grounded perspective about it. Um, I've said this many times, and it bears repeating again, like Donald Trump tweeting about me feeling like I deserved to have been fired is not even in the top 30 of worst things mm-hmm. I have ever experienced. And so... I think because of 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 that, knowing some of the difficulties I've been through, it's allowed me to be that much more determined. And there's a certain toughness that comes when you're raised the way I was raised and in the city I was raised in. Mm-hmm. And so when I do get critics or backlash or, you know, hate tweets or death threats, it just um, it really makes me that much more determined to continue to use my voice. How long did it take you to write Uphill? Well, this process started in 2019. And at first, I went about it the wrong way. So if there's any uh, wannabe authors out there, (laughs) take the advice that Walter Mosley, the the great writer, gave me and put yourself on a schedule. Because at first, you know, I might write 20 or 30 pages and then not write for three weeks. That's not the way you can finish a book. I had to put myself on a daily schedule to write. And... Sometime in 2019, I think toward the end of 2019, I finished the first version of it. And so obviously there's a, an extensive editing process that happens. And the book release date kept getting pushed push back because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. They wanted me to be able to be in studio and mm-hmm. talk about the book and go on a book tour, which I'm on currently right now. So even though, um, you know, I got my book deal in 2019, it really, I mean, I finished the last of it uh, probably earlier this year mm-hmm. as we've gone through the revision process. How important is uh, Ian 
<laughs> yes, that is my husband. How important has Ian been in all of this? Uh, he's been extremely important, um, very supportive. Uh, he was probably the first person, I think, to read it, first or, or second. I feel like he was the first because I wanted to make sure that he was comfortable mm-hmm. with the things that were going to be in there, make sure he knew everything that you know would be in there so that if somebody asked him a question, he wouldn't be surprised by it and, and would have been able to um, you know, have thought it uh, through since of, of when he looked at the material but you know not just through the book writing process process I mean he's important in my life period I, I you know I, I often say and it's still true I mean marrying him was the best decision I've ever made look at that smile I don't mean, you know, <laughs> you're I'm flexing. not saying that because he's in the studio <laughs> and he's flexing making the Ric Flair you're a big Ric Flair fan uh I do I I used to like a lot of kids I used to love you know, know wrestling know. so but I want you know I know people have seen the promo I put out with the book and I had on a Ric Flair robe that's actually not my robe it is my husband's robe because I got him the Ric Flair robe for his his birthday whether you like it or not it's the best thing cooking today <laughs> I, I grew up in st louis i grew up with oh, rick flair. flair i love rick flair um it was interesting because you were talking about when people ask you you know the your favorite interview all the people and you mentioned mandy garcia and i thought that was so remarkable because it's those names that people may not recognize and i'm going to quote you you say as a journalist you're not supposed to be emotionally invested in the stories that you write close quote what was it about mandy garcia well uh, this is at a time where um you know this was still early in the citadel's phase of accepting women into there and i like a lot of people i lived through the shannon faulkner experience Mm -hmm. which uh, did not turn out well and so mandy was different because she was their first female athlete and her toughness, her grit. I mean, it, it was hard not to watch her go through. It's what they call a knot process. So if you're essentially like a freshman, mm-hmm. they send you all through this very harrowing physical experience. Where, and it just so happened to rain that day. So she's had to crawl through mud, run, do like all these other things that a lot of people would not have been able to survive. So I would be kidding myself as a journalist or as a person that I'm watching this young lady who is maybe 18 or 19 years old go through this Mm -hmm. and not be inspired by her and her willingness to really take this on because people were still very critical about women joining the Citadel and she was able Mm -hmm. to absorb all of that and and come out, um, you know, on the winning end. I recently read an article was uh, about a journalist. I think he works for uh, Telemundo Hispanico, and he talked about that he believes that journalism now that we're in a phase or a space or a moment or whatever where you 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 journalists should be more vocal about certain things that they should not be, as he put it, objective. What would you take on that? Well, I think for. Uh, many years I think journalists have hidden behind objectivity we strive to be fair <laughs> being objective is different okay I say it all the time yeah we the, be, fairness is is really the goal um and because we have to be able to tell a truth and a lot of times that truth does have a side you know if we're having conversations about racism I mean w- what's the pro of racism Right. (laughs) Racism doesn't need any help. It doesn't need a both sides argument. And so what I've sensed and seen now in this age where we're very politically divided, where there are certain key issues that are on the table, journalists need to be able to frame these stories honestly Mm -hmm. and don't say um, misremembered. Say the president lied. It took um, newspapers the longest time 
to say the president was lying. I'm going to say it right here, and because I think we have some of the best journalists in not just Atlanta, but not just in all of NPR, but just period. And I remember we had a conversation with uh, an executive who said, well, you can't call the president a liar. And I'm like, why not? If he lied, that's what he did. That's what he did. Why right. can't we say that? And we went and we went through, you know, what are, the, what, is the, what are the protocols? What's NPR doing? And now there's a shift from 2016 to now and how we are covering politicians, not just the president, but anybody. If you don't tell the truth, it is, I'm going to say you, you not tell lie the truth. and are a liar. <laughs> right? I know. I think that's and that's part of our jobs. People have to remember what is the catchphrase they used to use uh, for journalism all the time? The watchdogs of society. Well, watchdogs are taken aside. Okay, so we still have to remember. Like our job is is definitely to frame information, but we have to be real with people. Otherwise, they don't they they won't have any respect for our institutions. And uh, I feel like um, I feel kind of disappointed in where journalism is right now because I think there's certain practices that have become so frequent that I don't know if they ever will stop. As I say, it should never be about the storyteller. It should be about the story. Jamil Hill, can you sum up what this journey's been like? Surprising. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think uh, when I think about what I originally, like sort of some of my original dreams, you know, as I mentioned, I wanted to work and, and write, at, write for Sports Illustrated. Never had television in the picture at all. Certainly never had ESPN. Um, I did want to write a book one day, but I want to write a fiction novel. Yeah. Never thought that I will be uh, writing a memoir. So this has been a very empowering season for me. And, you know, I, I think at this uh, what's worked for me so far is not having a five-year plan in the last 10 <laughs> years. I, I'm just trying to see where all of this is taking me. Absolutely. It's called Uphill. It's a memoir by Jamil Hill. Thank you so much for coming in and taking time. I appreciate it. I love talking to fellow journalists about their journeys. Thank you so much. Thank you, and good luck to your fantasy team. You got to get out of eighth place. You know what? <laughs> it's a conspiracy. They've all Sue, Bonita, Allison. They've all ganged up on me. They're listening now. Look, my phone about to go off. They've just been ganging up on me. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Lashawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder: Let us know your thoughts on this program or any other. Send me an email because I know y'all will. Rose at WABE.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, our podcast, so subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.